0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Pierre de Linsart. It's easy to forget that the cultural archetypes that pass for queerness today have historical roots. Some of these roots are merely years away from today's reality, but they are nonetheless distinct and come with their own artefacts and subcultures. Peter Gerberg's book Hipster Porn looks at one such source artefact and its fandom, using as its matter the pink-papered magazine Butt that gained a cult following among European gay men in the first decade of the 2000s. Hipster Porn takes the aesthetics of Butt to critique and rearticulate key concepts from gender, queer and ethnic theories, and delivers new accounts of subjectivity and sociality as they apply to queer media culture. Peter Herberg is a writer, critic and curator, and I'm very happy that he joins me now. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you. I've realized as I was reading for the book that I've set myself up for an exquisite failure here, Peter. I am by no means an expert, or I'm frankly vaguely only vaguely literate with the ins and outs of queer theory. So if I come across as remotely knowledgeable in a conversation, it will probably because I have been exposed to gay pornography more than it is. Advisable to admit to at the beginning of a conversation. So before we we get into why any of that is, I might ask you to expose yourself a little bit in whichever form you particularly want to. <laughs> I'm interested particularly in your professional information, um, how it is that you came to be interested in Butt Magazine, but also I'm interested in your work with Berlin's Fullers Museum
1: thank you and thanks again for inviting me to this podcast so peter rieberg is my name Uh, i come from germany born in hamburg but i've spent my adult life pretty much half in the united states half in germany my academic training is most has mostly been in the united states i have a phd in literature researched and um, taught at several universities in the united states my academic profile is mostly you know although i'm coming from a german studies background Uh, with a very strong interest in, you know, what we used to call French theory. So I'm Mm -hmm. trained in the late 1990s, early 2000s by uh, scholars like Avital Ronell, for example. Um, So basically, I wrote a very theory-heavy dissertation on Kafka, Freud Mm -hmm. and Derrida. And although that training and thinking critically and also a certain canon or archive uh, of deconstruction is still part of my work in terms of the material. Let's just say this after the dissertation, I've never <laughs> touched literature again uh, for from an academic position, but just for creative purposes, I'm, I'm, I'm also writing literature, but that's a different story. So anyways, like academically after my dissertation, I really became a queer studies scholar uh, with a strong interest in theory and queer theory and, you know, further developing, criticizing queer theory uh, and mostly talking about popular culture and visual culture, including pornography, including gay pornography, online pornography, popular culture, including the Eurovision Song Contest. Um, <laughs> so these are my research uh, areas. <laughs> I don't, don't
2: do remember we met not so long ago in person and you were and, endless endless um treasure of Eurovision trivia so so maybe we can, yeah. we can do a little quick fire uh, round at the end
1: <laughs> totally totally so the Eurovision book has not been which is of course you know a huge topic also because it's going to be hosted in either liverpool or glasgow next year exactly. um so the Eurovision book has not uh, been published yet. Oh, it's not ready yet, but, you know, there's a there's a research project also in the line mm-hmm. on queer subjectivity, European identity, and, and Eurovision. So the, the project I've been uh, working on, so let's just say in the past 10 years, I'm really mostly working on queer visual culture, um, contemporary art, um, gay pornography, And uh, the project that we're going to talk about today, Hipster Porn, Queer Masculinities and Affective Sexualities and the Fanzine Butt, is where those interests came together. And beginning of the 2010s, I had a five-year position in Mm -hmm. Austin, Texas, and it was mostly during that time that I worked on this project. Hipster Porn gave tons of uh, talks on Butt Magazine, which I'm still... Mm -hmm. doing actually just last week in Bochum at a art history conference talking about the relaunched but but also since you've already mentioned that uh, I don't only have just some academic career but also career outside of academia and journalism but also in uh, museum work archiving and curating so for the past four years I've been appointed as head of collections and archives at Schule's Museum in Berlin which in the German-speaking world is the largest uh, of its kind mm-hmm. and also one of the larger queer museum and archival institutions uh, globally. And at Schule's Museum, I also curated shows on contemporary art and photography. But now I'm mm-hmm. actually back in academia for a while and I hold the position of <laughs> visiting a professor at the University of Cincinnati. It's a confusing biography. I'm really... Hello. You know, oh, no, switching we're
2: back and forth <laughs> we're following and I'm, I'm sort of envious of your retreat to cincinnati which you <laughs> just 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 assumed a few weeks ago right let's try to figure out what we're looking at but magazine i have a very hazy memory of it and i've realized that most of the memories of it that i have come from a 2014 edition from Taschen books mm-hmm. which reprinted a whole bunch of it any magazine that gets gets reproduced with this kind of type of popular publisher, must have done something. But magazine was published between 2001 and 2011, if I'm right, and and it's very difficult to really pin down, so why don't you, why don't you have a stab? Yeah,
1: I mean, let's maybe start by saying uh, fanzines have been part of subcultures and also including queer subcultures for quite some time. So especially, for example, in the 1970s from Toronto, Bruce LaBruce, but also Suck from Amsterdam, from the Netherlands. So we had always, you know, local cultural contexts that produced fanzines back then in the 70s in in a very different media environment. And uh, those zines back then were mostly produced as, you know, Xeroxes. Of mm-hmm. uh, handmade xeroxes, and then distributed and, and and sent by mail. If one looks at it from a say media history perspective, one could say there's a certain promise to the fanzine, attached to the fanzine, a promise of uh, something true or honest will be shown or told in mm-hmm. this medium because it has a direct access to the subculture. It is exempt from certain norms of publishing or normative forms of representation, right? So that's kind of the aura of the fanzine that we know from, for example, the 1970s. Mm -hmm. Around 2000, we had a um, renaissance of fanzines, particularly of queer fanzines, um, but it's coming from Amsterdam. We had also, um, for example, they don't shoot homos, don't they, From, from Melbourne. We had Basso from Berlin. Uh, so mm-hmm. there's a, there's a huge, I mean, at least ten or so, you know, um, that started to emerge around uh, 2000. There has been there have been exhibitions. A.A. Bronson has also curated exhibitions um, uh, on this new wave of fanzines. Yeah. Uh, there have been catalogs that document that. Uh, and but is part of that new wave of fanzines that emerged around 2000s. Um, it lived for ten years, as you said. I mean, maybe an initial quick answer of why that, that mm-hmm. happened. In terms of media history, I would say it has a lot to do with uh, with the internet because the internet allowed for a circulation of amateur photography, including amateur pornography, uh, on a scale that was just not imaginable in the first half of the yeah. 1990s, right? So, suddenly we were surrounded by completely different visual politics that were kind of fueled through this possibility and then desire of self-documentation. But, and other fanzines in my mind are a response to that. You know, they kind of take up, they they kind of uh, channel this new visual landscape. And this is the interesting thing, of course, they don't create um, a website. I mean, they have that too, but that's not the initial move, but they bring it back to print. It's a sort of like remediation, you know, which a a backward remediation, which has a lot to do with, um, and that's also, you know, the title of my book, with the hipster culture, although hipster might also be a bit of an ungenerous title because I have (laughs) to say I ideally love Butt and the makers of Butt didn't like the title of my book. They still gave me permission to print the um, images. I don't mean hipster. Hipster for me is a very ambiguous category. We probably get to speak about it later. You know, I'm I'm just mentioning it here because the remediation to print is also along the lines of a certain hipster fetishization of the analog and the self made Mm -hmm. Brewing coffee, you know, like roasting coffee, brewing beer making your own fanzine right so a certain kind of um... so you
2: describe you describing my, my weekends essentially i, I feel <laughs> i've <ever> seen
1: <laughs> yes so you know like this is the, the this this fetishization of a, 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 as a response so the analog as a response of being surrounded by digital imagery I think this this explains in one way the emergence of a variety of zines around that time hmm. if we're talking about but, but in in particular, but is not just a zine, but also a zine that offers a very specific body politics. I think one a, a first explanation to the new visual style of butt, you know, which I'm naming hipster, and um, but maybe to give it a little bit more of an idea, what what kind of style are we talking? About. It's a less conform style of masculinity if we compare it, for example, to gay pornography yeah. of the 1980s and 1990s. You know, we have, we do have muscular bodies, but we also have fat bodies. We also have thin bodies. So the, there is not just one dominant norm that allows you access to the pages of, but it is probably age in a certain way. You know, we find very little old people, uh, Mm -hmm. very few old people. It is also in a certain way race, um, but is a very white project. I think out of 29 covers before before 2011, we have maybe three covers with non-white people. However, in terms of, we're thinking about it uh, generally in terms of masculinity, fit masculinity, gay masculinity, it's definitely an alternative form of masculinity in terms of body politics. And, In my mind, that is a reaction to the AIDS crisis. So maybe to explain that just briefly, if we say that AIDS was not just a human and a health crisis and a medical crisis and a social and cultural crisis, it was also a crisis of representation. And one of the points of discussion of the AIDS crisis in the 1980s was, of course, how to present gay male body with HIV. You know, and we have different responses to that from popular uh, media, the scandalization of Rock Hudson's body or Freddie Mercury's body. Um, Mm -hmm. We also have a certain exploitative view on the suffering gay body in general. And one of the responses here was, uh, for example, by the gay porn industry to assert the strength and the health and the fitness of gay men, you know, and to give us these very buff gym bodies that populated gay pornography uh, in the 18, 80, 1980s and 1990s. Since 1996, we have the combination therapy that turned HIV from a mostly deadly disease into a chronic illness that is very manageable. Mm-hmm. So you could say by the time of 2001, when but emerged, those, you know, as in gay slang, sometimes called fascist body politics of of just asserting your health, were not necessary in the same way anymore. Normal bodies could be shown again.
2: So this is super interesting. It might be a good idea to give our listeners some of a kind of visual um, set of cues, if we can do that descriptively, because the aesthetic that you describe is kind of recognizable to, I think it's recognizable to, to your generation and my generation, but definitely won't be that recognizable to younger listeners for whom... The zine no longer has the idea of print and the zine kind of coincides with the tiktok age a little bit too much i'm afraid i've taken down a couple of citations from from the butt website of titles and headlines to kind of give give a taste. so i maybe ask you to fill in i'm going to read out a couple of that that are just amusing artist is compelled to sack jawbreaking breaking dick doing random grind to hook up with cocktease that is in a section called sex reviews another one New York tourist meets West Hollywood bubble, butt for sex. I think that that gives us an idea of the kind of written content that we might be finding in this magazine, of course, because it's a porn publication. It does talk about sex explicitly, does talk about the porn industry, does talk about porn films. But actually, the magazine is also filled with a lot of kind of political lifestyle pieces. It almost passes this kind of. Playboy defence of, you know, we're here for the articles. So maybe I could ask you to, to give us a little bit of a taste of the kind of how where it pitches itself, this publication, in all the possible senses of high and lowbrow, sexual and cultural and, and how these things coincide.
1: All right. Uh, so let's maybe start by by uh, taking up the word you mentioned, porn publication. I mean, is but really a porn publication? I think that's not entirely sure. I, mm. I'm calling my my book "Hipster Porn." Yes, and you know, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, um, queer, especially gay sexuality and pleasure. Do have a very emphasized standing in the context of but it's also true that porn stars uh, François Saga um, Akosmiap, you know, like established porn stars from major labels, uh, continuously um, appear in but mm-hmm. that's true. But they do appear, um, you know, next to John Waters or uh, or Bruce LaBruce or mm-hmm. a. a. Bronson, right? So it's it's a very I mean a quick label would also. Uh, be to call it art porn in several ways. I mean, mm-hmm. just, not just in the combination of art and porn, but also in its take on representing the nude male body. And maybe we start a little bit by talking about the photographs because, yeah. yes, they are, let's just say this. I think the, the formula of but visually the formula of but is, and we should say that maybe also it consists of usually six, maybe eight stories. These are our interviews, nothing but interviews, plus uh, photographs taken quite often by very famous photographers like uh, Wolfgang Tillmans. Yeah, whom he, he, Bruce, he Bruce
2: recurs. He, he, he comes up, comes up. Yes. Time and again.
1: Yes, he's, he's part of the editorial team. Bruce mm-hmm. Rus calls him the signature photographer for butt. And one could also obviously say that the whole butt style owes a lot to Tillman's early 1990s yeah. uh, club pictures, et cetera, et cetera. Um, or, or also fashion photography, is, is Terry Richardson plays a huge role. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, so we have, you know, male nudity is the focus. That's true. I would. Say, I mean, I've never been, been a butt shooting, but my, my sense is that the butt editors try to persuade uh, the interviewer to undress and mostly they manage but sometimes they don't i mean michael stipe from r e m keeps his boxers on for example right unforgettable <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly so nudity is there we uh, i mean if we're like just checking the question of pornography here we hardly ever see hard dicks except when hard dicks is turned into a special interest of the story then mm. hardcocks do appear in that one story we never see sexual action may, maybe jerking off or maybe mutual jerking off yeah. or kind of but we never see butt fucking um we never there's no sexual action in but so it's the yeah. like usually the models are isolated in the picture that mostly at home or at their workplace, so a place that somehow individually relates to them. So it's an it's so what's in, what's interesting here to me is that yes, it is about sexuality, but it's not about sexuality as a pornographic value necessarily. It's not necessarily jerk off material, mm. but it's more about gay masculinity, maleness, sexuality placed in an everyday context. You know, and I think the this maybe this could be a bridge to the headlines you were talking about that yeah. both appear on the websites and also within the magazine. I mean, the headlines are usually funny, you know, or oftentimes funny, as as the examples that you gave us. <laughs> they're making a joke. So, yeah, you know, they're sexual. They're, they're kind of jokes. But the, question the kind is... of click, the kind of clickbaity,
2: very knowingly. Yes, it's, they they really they really contrast with the otherwise kind of semi intellectual approach of 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 the magazine. The...
1: I I agree. And they, you know, if we speak about that conceptually or theoretically, I think what it does, it it brings different spheres together, right? Like a hobby like gardening and the fact that someone is an escort or the fact that someone has a big (laughs) dig but has an interest in old books right so it kind of <laughs> <laughs> combines these uh, these apparently unmatchable things and i think what's yeah the question is why is that funny right and it kind yeah. of is funny but i mean one and of course, every theoretical explanation of a joke destroys the joke. That's the yeah. sad thing.
2: I mean, but, unfortunately, I'm so sorry to, to pin you on this. You do try to explain the joke in your own book, so, <laughs> so, so leave Freud alone, I would say. At this
1: moment. <laughs> there is Something interesting is going on when you uh, contextualize sexuality and you don't give it the extraordinary place that it also kind of claims on porn. You know, porn is a Porn is a dream or porn as a holiday from life, where different mm-hmm. rules apply, right? It's porn has almost this va- validated uh, utopian uh, position in in but sexuality is brought back to <laughs> to eating, to working, to farting, to boredom. So it's it's placed in a very different, in an everyday, like where it is, one might say. You know, you could also wow. say that's the documentary value of of but in a sense. So yes, it is. In that sense, I would say it's more documenting sexuality in the context of gay and queer lifestyles and not so much pornographic.
2: All right, so we're not looking at porn. And I think that's that's a good moment to try to consider a little bit the the place of Butt Magazine in relationship to what is in the, in the 2000s, the emergent gay mainstream, so that we can try to begin to theorize a little bit what it is that I was trying to do so what what is happening in in the mainstream? I would hazard that in the kind of European Western milieu, the early two thousands are a place of the metrosexual. You mentioned already that the post AIDS crisis, or at least post the acute moment of the AIDS crisis, gay pornography has this kind of body ideal, which is funny enough now has become become the realm of the of the right wing, particularly in the U.S. You know, like going to the gym is is supposedly the the thing that the straight social conservative is supposed to do. but mm. we, We're in this kind of strange moment where gay culture starts getting really widespread commercial mm. and it's in a very, very strange moment when it doesn't know whether it, it wants to follow this kind of finally free neoliberal mm. consumerism, commercialism, that, that I think heterosexuality is definitely subject to. So mm. how, how does but, but Magazine relate to, to those forms?
1: You're absolutely right. And these social, political, economic Cultural tendencies have also been reflected by queer theory. Just to give maybe mm-hmm. a couple of keywords here, you know, since the 2000s, we are discussing uh, homo normativity, for example, right? So that um, uh, certain under certain conditions, uh, race and ethnicity and class are obviously uh, crucial here. Um, gay people gain access to neoliberal privilege in a, in a new in a new form in a new form in a in a form that in a way, let's just say in quotation marks accepts accepts homosexuality but I mean in my mind uh, under two conditions it's uh, it's the form of the couple you know, which is uh, not socially threatening for a mainstream society and also I would say in a and that's a bit of a paradoxical complicated, situation but still i would say in a desexualized way i mean we do yeah. see gay people in the public on television we have queers folk um, and other productions we have gay comedies but uh you know in in mainstream production uh gay people men and women usually don't have sex <laughs> so which yeah. is paradoxical in the sense that it is sexuality that defines People as a social minority, so we have homonormativity both on the level of representation. We have it on the level of lawmaking and legislation with access to um, marriage and adoption rights, and maybe to go one step further, we have it also on the level level of national politics you know there's not just the discussion about homonormativity but also the discussion about homo nationalism. Mm-hmm. so the question uh in which ways gay people in the army uh, in which ways the access to privilege is not just say an individual economic benefit but also in the context of a national narration in which gay people are now included, and also offer them, you know, openly a quite conservative um, place in in national mm-hmm. politics, which is, and I mean, not that gay people didn't were not conservative before, but they could not necessarily be it as gay people, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that is an, an important difference here this this offer this open offer made to conservative gay positions in national politics um so that is you know uh, just in a theoretical language i think maybe to to take up some of the ideas and 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 um, assessments that you gave about the 2000s um if this is what the 2000s are yes what does how does but is part of that and how does it offer a different world right (laughs) let's just say this i i wish i i'm a fan of but you know i'm a (laughs) fanboy that's
2: that's clear that's already come come through (laughs) don't worry
1: so i don't want to say like bad things about but um but i'm of of course also an academic you know or i'm trying to think about this critically so i cannot i cannot just sell part of me is nothing but celebrating but and part of me Uh, you know, since I wrote this book, this book is not just a fan mail, you know, it's also a critical um, engagement with the project. And uh, I would say that but is a bit ambiguous here, but maybe let's just start with what is really worth celebrating um, about. But, you know, I mentioned already this this response to body politics of the 1980s mm-hmm. and 1990s. So one could say but body politics when they they become you know readable in the context of AIDS, but they are also of course initially form of they show uncommodified bodies. You know, if we compare it to the metrosexual, uh, if we compare it to the gym body, if we compare it to the porn body, uh, the the emergence of but marked a moment of non commodified bodies. Mm-hmm. In 2022, this might look a little bit different, but I think if we look at it historically, at the moment of its emergence, this is what it achieved. So, um, you know, you didn't have to go to the gym. You didn't have to be marked by fashion labels, although at the very same time, fashion and fashion <laughs> advertisement played yeah. a huge role. in. But it's a, it's a paradoxical situation, yeah. right? So, so you're like uh, uh, showing non-commodified bodies and placing them then again in a highly commodified uh, context of high-end fashion uh, advertisement in the zine itself, Mark Jacobs, uh, Adidas, uh, etc. Mm-hmm. right? Anyways, so in terms of queer culture and gay culture and historiography, I think, but did achieve that to offer a different and alternative model of masculinity through its body politics that was not from the very start part of the neoliberal paradigm. Also, a second point, you know, as I said, I think the the successful neo, neoliberal gay subject was both masculinized, but also desexualized subject, yeah. but certainly has an investment in bringing Sex, I mean, there's no conversation about in, in but without sex, you know, you, and there's mm-hmm. no but but completely refuses to partake in this economy of desexualizing gay culture. And I think this might be even the, the strongest, the most important achievement of but. So, in that sense, it is a counter project to the normalizing tendencies of the 2000s, I would say.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: At the very same time, you know, but was not just was available in gay bookstores, but it had a certain deal with, uh, you know, a brand that is now now out of business, American Apparel, you know, which mm. uh, American Apparel, this no label label from California yeah. of the 2000s that brought us these plain t-shirts and funny colors especially celebrated for their for their colorful underwear you know everybody had like american apparel turkeys or mauve uh, underwear in the 2000s (laughs) at one point right and this this shows of course a process that certain subcultural values within in Capitalism are in a heartbeat transformed into a market value, you know, and very quickly, but was could be accessed in this way and, and turned into a value not just within a uh, gay subculture, but also within a certain fashion market, you know, and I think that's also a strategy that the, the makers of but, Job and Gerd, from the very start pursuit. I mean, they are like magazine makers and they come from, they come from advertisement, you know, so, uh, they, they had an interest in bringing these fears together, maybe in a form that was not as destructive or exploitative as we know it from mainstream media.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. What do I even say other than, hey, (sighs) well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed. So you don't have to download the new Bumble now.
2: Yeah, so I think I think we're in an interesting historical moment where the Internet really kicks off in popular culture. You know, the 2000s are when when everything is really finally open to at least in Europe. But you point to the idea that queer theory stops being able to catch up with what is happening. And I want to ask you to, well, to give you some space to talk about the the theoretical aspects of the book. I'm not going to say that it reads like your Kafka thesis, but there is a lot of quite hardcore theory in the book. So to anyone who would like to pick this up, hoping hoping for a nice history, a nice kind of praise of the magazine, I direct you maybe to the Tashin volume instead. But I think it's really interesting what you do, particularly with how you try to rewrite the relationship between sexuality and gender as it plays out at that particular moment. I think that a lot of the things that you theorize and describe happening in the very early 2000s really have set the scene to how cultural sexual politics or gender politics really has played itself out to this very day. So theorize, please. How do we, how do we try to understand that moment
1: yes. from okay. the perspective
2: of earlier queer theories?
1: Okay, I'll I'll try my best. So maybe, maybe for a start, we can just briefly, which I'm doing also in the organization of the chapters, um, you know, distinguish uh, gender from sexuality. Of course, they're always linked in many ways. So if we talk about gender... The theoretical paradigm to discuss gender since the early 1990s has been, of course, Judith Butler's gender Mm. trouble and bodies that matter from, I think, 91, 93, you know, around that time, English version, German version shortly afterwards. And the the critical tool that Butler applied here is, as we know, um, performativity Uh, and thinking about gender, not in essential terms, as something that is inherently given biologically authorized. Um, You know, this brings us obviously already to the debates that we are in right now. Um, But as performative in the sense that gender only becomes an intelligible category for psychic and social life by being repeatedly performed, you have to um, again and again and again, uh, confirm, you know, that you're male or female, that you're a man or a woman. Mm-hmm. And if you fail to perform your gender, you will be sanctioned. You know, there will be repercussions against you. The ideas of Butler had a career that, you know, very few ideas in academia <laughs> managed to get. You know, like uh, it's been become so much uh, part of our. Popular understanding of gender these days of the Pope talks about Butler, you know, like it's it, it's entered all kinds of discourses. Politicians talk about Butler. Butler. Anyways, the heroine or the hero or heroine for, for Butler's paradigm of gender performativity um, was the drag queen. Drag queen, as an exa- example also of how queer subcultures perform gender. Experiment with performing gender, uh, performing with the failure of performing gender, and how these investments in drag and camp and whatnot are essential to queer subcultures. So a lot of the the focus on gender was a lot on the question of theatricality, artificiality, uh, and so forth. You know, and if we think of the 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 archive that um, queer has to offer, of course, a lot of examples come to mind from, you know, early cross-dressing cultures in Berlin of the 1920s, for -hmm. example, to the present. So there is, you know, uh, a, of course, a validity and and a huge value in in Butler's work, which I'm, you know, summarizing here very, very um, uh, crassly, (laughs) uh, generally, of course. Anyways, I'm making this point because in my mind, uh, but, but did, does, and that's interesting, but does not fit into the paradigm of performativity. Mm. And we could, you know, on a first level, we could say, for example, that but has not an interest in drag, but has not an interest in artificiality, but has not an interest in semiotic excess, you know. Mm-hmm but but's project is to document the male body <laughs> the materiality of the male body the forms of the male body yeah so this is this is very far removed from a from a queer project that is invested in materiality the question then is if that's the case is but even queer or does but not bring us mm-hmm. a kind of naturalized idea of masculinity back I mean, one could also say that's the that's the ideology of porn. Now I'm going back to, it, but being put the ideology of boor, porn is of course also to show cis male bodies in a non-performative way, although porn is so much about performativity. Going back to but, so we have a documentation of the of the male body of its forms of its different shapes and its interest in variation. I would say this is not performative, but it's doing something else. It's it's documenting the it's documenting the male body but let's just say it documents it in a way and this is a bit of a paradoxical thought but i think it's really true for the pro- project of God. it documents it in a way that is not necessarily reaffirming the ideology of masculinity so we have we have you know we have forms we have bodies that are completely recognizable uh, as male, whose value it is to be male, but it's a form of maleness, and that's you know a strange thought maybe. It's a form of maleness that is not necessarily masculine. It's mm-hmm. a form of maleness that is not asserting its masculine power. It's not. Yeah. We could also simply say it's a form of maleness that is not phallic. Yeah, but it shows like male vulnerability. So it kind of believes in the body as it is but it doesn't believe uh, in it as an example of male of, of masculine ideology but it believes in it more as a as a as an arena of a variation of forms of male diversity and my, male vulnerability um all right so that would be my st- statement about um <laughs> But's contribution to gender but you also maybe you can bring me back to that by repeating it. But the thing that comes up, and you've already alluded
2: to it, that in this kind of dialectic between gender and sexuality, but maybe is a precursor of what it is that we're seeing now in, in popular culture, but has to give up a little bit on sexuality because it's not a porn magazine. It's not, you know, it's mm. a, at best erotica. The, the men, mm. even though they, the men in, in the magazine, even though they admit to having sex, they admit to being fully on board with asexuality somehow mm. don't express it in the way that we find in say the Burbank porn movement that, that Lee Edelman talks about. And just to kind of give it give it a tiny bit of a flavor from my kind of cultural observations of now, one of the things that we cultural commentators bemoan quite a lot is that while the youth of today, in inverted quotes, are very happy to talk about gender and talk about sexuality. Somehow the younger generations of today are not having sex. So in a sense, I'm kind of interested in, in the conflict between trying to own gender again, having to as you as you propose in your theoretical framework, trying to bypass this kind of problematic need to perform gender, this really queer, it is what it is, less if uh, we're not performing to your I mean, that would be the manifesto of but I imagine it is so liberated that it's not really trying to do anything other than to make itself into a commodity. But that's another another problem. But at, at that comes at the cost of sex. And is 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 that a trade-off that you recognize within your theorization?
1: I, I hesitate to answer because you know, but is I mean, okay, so you you think but is but prepared a certain mm-hmm. No, no, no!
2: I'm, I'm, um, no, I'm I've, I've made, have made a very, very silly, slippery yeah. slope proposition. Of course, of course, not. It would be. It's interesting that you are so invested in a single cultural artifact, and that's that. But that's maybe more about you than than about the world's culture. You're to make a step further away from from the state in which Butler left gender by by say the year 2000, and you're trying to find examples in your case study here of of gender not being performative, and I and I think you do actually come quite close to to exploring aspects of this in the text. You you talk mm. about the distinction between pornography and post pornography. So mm. in as much as we so far agreed that the button mm. was not pornography, it's an exponent of something else. Mm. And I this is not a very precise question because I haven't taken enough <laughs> no, but, notes, I, I, but I, I, no. Is post pornography somehow non-sexual suddenly? Yes.
1: Or, or, okay. Let's let's talk about sexuality then and not just about gender. You know, mm-hmm. and I i uh the title is of the book is queer masculinities and affective sexualities which is Mm. a bit of a um an elegant compound uh, it's a very
2: very good queer theory title
1: (laughs) (laughs) so let's talk about this the combination of affects and sexuality so what what i was what i was and that i think leads to this question of you know a desexualized present or a certain kind of at least, say, lack of discourse about sexuality or lack, maybe also lack of public uh, for sexuality. So I think part of Butt's strategy to distinguish itself from, from corporate porn <laughs> was to also introduce a different form of sexuality uh, that is less instrumental, that is more personalized, you know. Mm. I mean, and but we have individual portraits. We get the we get the 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 the, the, the names, the individual names of the people being um, interviewed. They're emphasised. I mean, one one approach would be to say it brings back the personal into sexuality, not just optimised anonymous bodies, but individually, personally diverging bodies and this implies also a different understanding from of sexuality which i call affective sexualities yeah. in queer theory since the 2000s since uh, Yves isachwick really isachwick's work of the two, late 1990s and early 2000s there has been a competition uh, between investigating sexuality and uh, affects, yeah. whereas early queer theory was really just talking about fucking when it talked about sexuality, <laughs> even though from Freud we already know that it's not just about genital sex, but sexuality so much more. It was only in the late 1990s and early 2000s that especially through Yves Sedgwick, um, the question of affect came into play. So how can queerness manifest itself if we're not just talking about um, sexual acts, specifically genital sexual acts. Uh, How do queer people feel differently? Or how is how does queer intimacy look like? You know, and since but had such a strong investment in showing non-commodified gay men and their vulnerability, it also had an investment in showing maybe let's just say more tender forms of sexuality or giving intimacy and vulnerability at least the same space as perversion, and perversion I mean, I mean here in the best and most <laughs> celebratory sense. And I think this is it, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting dance that Butt is performing here because I think Butt doesn't want to go completely to, but maybe also sees the risks of you know becoming desexualized by talking about affect. But it it, it also it wants to talk about intimacy, you know, and it's mm-hmm. also. Maybe we could also, again, you know, if we look at this historically, say intimacy has been such so phobically marked after AIDS, not just in the sexual sense, but also, you know, in a a, a more encompassing physical sense. I mean, intimacy, intimacy between gay men was a taboo so but wants to bring this back not just as unprotected anal sex but also as a as a you know being together of gay men and showing this man and the enjoyment of that anyways so i call this a dance because but wants to bring this back and and cherishes this form of culture but it also makes these gestures of remaining perverse you know Mm -hmm. and and make sure to bring porn stars back into the magazine make sure to talk about penis sizes make sure to talk about different sizes of asses you know so there is i I think it doesn't want to lose that connection to queer perversion while at the same time opening up a different world if we ask the question whether but contributed to a desexualized gay and queer present would say it can be used this way, it could be read this way, you know, it, it has that part. I think the but project is about something else, but it, I think it can be reframed like that, yes.
2: Well, I'll refrain from writing an essay <laughs> <I'm> reaching that <laughs> conclusion. It's most suspicious. Um, you you said something very interesting now, which actually leads me to my one of my final questions, which is to do with the community and the togetherness that Butt tries to bring. And of course, it's nothing particularly special about the idea that a fanzine, a zine, would would have a kind of subculture attached to it. But But in its particularly, it's in the online manifestation seems to navigate the at the time in the 2000s emerging internet landscape with a little bit of a kind of contrary mission yet again and you know unsurprisingly by this time so it has a personal section called um buttheads and that's bizarrely still online so people who Mm -hmm. who showed us the butts in the early 2000s signed up for the service are still immortalized quite a few of them with the surnames and and in and, a you know, personal, personal, personal identifying characteristics, and so this is all open to the world, which is kind of endearing, and it's endearing in, in a number of ways that goes beyond the kind of naivety of the openness. It's also to do with the aesthetics, the fact that all the the website is in black and white for some reason, the you know the kind of questions and interactions that these these people engage in. So I I want you to to maybe speculate a little bit about what it is that but was able to do in terms of community creation. I mean given we're of course talking about a kind of cult magazine I I kind of I'm too scared even to ask you about its print circulation in case it turns out but it was 20 and we're talking about <laughs> a subculture so small that, that only you really you and Benedict Tash have...
1: um, we're talking about a couple of thousands I don't yeah. have the exact numbers although hold on if you I do know that you know we do have a relaunch of but this year so but yeah, yeah. 30 appeared this spring in Paris and but uh number 31 just uh yeah, came it's
2: out, out a few it's years. out it's, a, it's out I recommend it to all listeners who want to see I was
1: why while you, while you while you were talking I was just like browsing through my uh emails because I chatted with you van Bennecon one of the two editors of but this morning I wanted mm-hmm. to have permission to reprint images for a book for a different book mm-hmm. project of a friend of mine where an article of mine appears and he just told me um but 30 is printed uh, in t- 10,000 copies, 10,000 oh, wow. copies. Okay. And it has been sold out uh, since it was you know, launched in March, the first uh, the, there's, the there's
2: definitely It's definitely a cold, cold interest now. Yes, it's, 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 and the, the
1: question is just like whether 50-something-year-old guys like me are buying it or whether there's a new generation of people out there that um, discover that. Well, the, the, those are the
2: questions I'd like to speculate. speculate. from from your perspective as an informed observer and and theorist because i think i think it it matters if that political project had any currency then its political potential now really does warrant Mm re-examination because it's not like but you know completes it. It's 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 project mm. necessarily. No,
1: of course, of course. I mean, if we if we you know, so if we raise the question about is there a but community and how does it manifest itself, I mean the. To be honest, my impression always was that the butt head uh, thing does not really work. I mean, I I mm. have no data to prove that, but um, whether but but head you know as the uh, as the social media platform for but fans and but readers whether that worked as a platform where people really met and connected i'm not sure i I honestly i mean i really don't know i i doubt it a little bit i always read it more as a (laughs) More ungenerously, as a bit of a narcissistic gesture mm. to claiming, you know, oh my God, um,
2: gay men being narcissists. Who would have?
1: Thought <laughs> <that>? <laughs> as a narcissistic gesture to claim your value as you know, as a butt, uh, as a butt, as a butt person, as someone who could potentially also appear in butt, right, to partake in the butt but um, universe and the the but project was always also making this uh, flattening the distinction between professionals and amateurs and readers of but became models in but or storytellers in but etc and were treated on a on the same level you know as as celebrities so um, but whether it worked in the sense of creating a community through these technologies I have my doubts. I mean, there is what I can say from my own experience, uh, you know, but had a couple of side pro- products and projects like producing towels. You mentioned the Taschen books mm-hmm. um, and also organized parties. Uh, for example, in Berlin, I went to two or three of them and you. Uh, there was a certain, you know, let's just say, a certain kind of uh, homosexual creative class that gathered at these butt meetings. Right. So in that respect, also uh, the title of my book, hipster porn is really justified. You know, I think that (laughs) there was a, there was a hipness created around the butt movement that manifested itself in these parties in buying these articles. And, you know, we haven't talked about beard beard culture yet, but, Obviously, you know, the whole gay beauty culture of the past 20 years Uh, but contributed to that, and also kind of.
2: I uh, can I can append a picture of your beard to 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 the show notes, <laughs> and we
1: can, we can just cover cover that. <laughs> um,
0: know, just,
2: just to do a tiny bit for for listeners who are by now but wondering with with academic stuff is. You do devote quite a bit of space to the idea of but to the question of body hair, and I think that's that's one of the things you do really beautifully and accessibly in a book.
1: But thank you, thank you. I'm I'm really obviously interested in uh you know asking the question how how does this materialize or is this in some ways effective um for the culture of 2022 my first response would be more sober and simply say you know in a, in a typical cultural studies manner well, uh, this is what happens in capitalism. You know, every youth and subculture style mm. is going to be corrupted by capitalism and turns uh, into a commodity. And this is what happened with but as well. And yes, yeah. you know, since uh, since 2010, the latest, a majority of gay men between 20 and 50 or so in urban uh, gay hubs in in the West. Try to look like the boys from Butt. You know that that mm. that has happened. So so, but the hipster style of Butt has become hegemonic uh, in yeah. and and probably in the sense of it's a reclaiming of masculinity for gay men. You know, in in this most simplistic version, I think that has happened. Um, you know, against Butt's best intentions, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but is this is is that is that it? You know, or uh, is there, is there more to it? I'm, I I don't have a theoretical answer to that. I only can give you maybe some anecdotes or descriptions. So from my work in Berlin of the past four years, you know, I've been working a lot with uh, contemporary young queer artists uh, that live in Berlin, many of them, you know, non, non-Germans, a lot of people from North America, from Israel, from Southern Europe, uh, you know, that contribute to the queer um, art scene in in the city uh, you know Spyros Rand for example uh, a Greek photographer that now lives in Berlin and he is one of the contributors of But 30 you know and this oh, wow. is the case for for a couple of others so um there is a generation of gay men let's say maybe in the 30s or so that have that grew up with But. that were kids when But emerged but that for for whom but was already a convention when they appeared mm. and they are continuing this kind of work some of it looks very close to to the but aesthetics almost non-distinguishable from yeah. but but i also think there's um there's interesting ways of developing this further or also to document how queer kids in berlin berlin neukölln and kreuzberg live in the 2020s is different, you know, and it owes a lot mm-hmm. to the but aesthetics, but it's also a different it's also a different world where this style is already given as a convention. but pictures change something. i mean, i'm I'm, I'm a little bit as I said, you know, I don't really have an interpretation here yet. Yeah. It's more of an observation. So but's impact on that generation is very clear. but i'm I, you know, I don't want to be as fast as saying, Well, it's nothing but a copy of but i mean that that would be horribly ungenerous and untrue
2: so peter finally i i want to ask you in in a mode of kind of hyper speculation what do you see the challenges for queer theory of today are so we discussed a Mm -hmm. little bit you know what what it is that but managed to achieve and how it applies to neukon berlin circa 2022 but queer theory of course is in a in a place in terms of its its exposure in terms of its role in culture generally on a completely different level, not only is it addressing different audiences, different expressions of gender and sexuality, it also has a very very different relationship to capital and and globalization so what's what's on your wish list what what does what does theory need to do now to to save itself from well, both cultural appropriation and this kind of complete explosion of of its unwitting success in
1: certain senses. Mm. I'm old-fashioned in this respect. And I am, you know, what I've also done with the book in a way, I do promote a return to the beginning of queer theory, um, Mm. not to ignore the also in parts very just demands that have been made, on queer theory in the past 15 years, but um, primarily because I see it as a huge problem. I see the desexualizing tendencies within queer theory as a as a huge problem, you mm-hmm. know, and I think, for example, if gay men have anything to contribute to queer sex, it's about you know we have to talk about fisting, we have to talk about drugs, we have to talk about we have to about the gay sex life, and we have to mm-hmm. explore how what that does to people, how relationships are being changed through that, and if we you know and that's if we put a taboo on that, which is even stranger to me because I think that the pharmaceutical changes of the past 15 years, you know, treatment as prevention for HIV positive people and also um, Truvada PrEP as a prophylaxis against HIV prevention and the online connectivity created a new sexual culture in which, you know, factually gay men, for example, are very experimental (laughs) in their behavior Mm -hmm. and are very creative in, in, you know, not having new experiences, but also new forms of relationships. This used to be the, source for queer theory, but it's completely, these days, it's with a few exceptions, Mm -hmm. completely cut off from queer theory. No one talks about contemporary gay sexual culture anymore. That's a huge problem. And, you know, a couple of people, including most famously, maybe Tim Dean, who has just published also a book on why America hates sex. Uh, I think this is, this is something we totally have to go back to, Um, but I also want to say, I don't mean this by um, ignoring the turns of queer theory of the past 15 years. That's also very important to me. You know, I think the queer of color critique by Jose Munoz and others um, was very justified. And I think to, uh, to politicize queer also in a way by connecting it, to other subject positions and identities that have not been uh, part of the queer conversation so much in the 1990s is unnecessary. And we don't want to fall back behind that. The question is, of course, and that's not just a question for queer, but for the post-colonial discourse and you know, for most cultural forms of criticism on the left, uh, how, do we, how do we escape the traps of identity politics? How can we make mm-hmm. the claim for identities that are in a, on a certain level of political business, uh, completely necessary, because otherwise you're not represented and you're, you cannot make political claims. But how do, we, how do we escape the traps that come with these forms of categorizations? And I, okay, that's a question <laughs> and a different oh, well. conversation.
2: Yeah, I mean, that, that, I think that's an important question to be able to find a way to salvage what's left of critical theory or in the original, as you were characterising it, in a way that it can not stand, find itself in complete opposition with this kind of contemporary manifestations that rely so heavily of, on identity politics. And it's not like the the job is is done. The fact that identity politics is so entwined with capital that, that it's essentially just self-destructing, that doesn't necessarily let the originals of of critical theory and queer theory off the hook, so it's very heartening to hear you talk about sexu- sexuality and sex as you know as those sort of processes that mechanistically need to be considered. I wrote a text recently trying to think a little bit about the relationship between morality and biopolitics where it came mm. to the monkeypox vaccine mm-hmm. and i thought about my own experience of going to a sexual health clinic um dean street express which happens to be the busiest sex- sexual health clinic in europe where everything is done by qr code you, you know mm-hmm. if you if you if you do drugs and you do fisting and you go to chemsex parties you don't tell a person that you tell an ipad that and mm-hmm. of course it's all super non-judgmental they text you they everything is fine but mm-hmm. When I, when I went once to a more old-fashioned clinic, suddenly for the first time in maybe 15 years of, of me being an adult and thinking about these things, someone was asking me why I was having a particular type of type of sex. like you know, What was the morality of this? Oh, should you be doing this? And I've just realized that actually by not talking about sex in very explicit terms, we have got to a point where, well, whoever has the easiest solution... Decides how these things play yeah. up, play out. So yeah. monkeypox, maybe maybe rightly from a utilitarian point of view, everyone politely queued up to get vaccinated. But it was for me this kind of moment where you realise, oh, we don't have an apparatus to talk about yeah. the relationship between sex and what it means for individuals, for communities. Yeah. And these are the things that things like queer theory, one of the early exponents of being able yeah. to talk about sexuality without giggling was yeah. supposed to be able to do um, yeah. when that's been relegated into into the realm of social conservatism there's the fact that it's right-wingers who have to ask about should gay men be fucking while there's a virus act. the fact that that brings back the conversations from the 80s yeah. and whatever the gay community if it still constitutes itself like that has no answer to that should yeah. be slightly frightening it's a-
1: yeah I think I mean maybe just a last word on that I think I mean, academia doesn't want to talk about sex. You know, that's that's for sure. Mm-hmm. I think there was a window between 1987 and 1997 where this was made possible, especially in North American academia, and it was made possible again, a bit paradoxically, through HIV and AIDS. I think mm-hmm. that the I think that the impact on eight of AIDS was so violent, and it was so. By the late 1980s, it was so, especially, again, in North America with its different health um, plan system, et cetera, and a different political culture um, and all of that. So that there was an urgency to responding to it intellectually that was exceptional. And I think this made queer theory as a conversation about sexualities um, possible. But <laughs> at the same time, you know, the majority of people, in academia or academia as an institution was also quite happy when this was no longer necessary.
2: Um Peter, thank you. I have one one last question, which is um, who should we look out for in the next Eurovision?
1: <laughs> <laughs> ah, I mean it's too early to say because as you know, the 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 entries are not being submitted until the beginning of the year.
2: I presume you have some insight and knowledge. But...
1: <laughs> I cannot because the honestly, like the I think maybe for one or two uh, candidates, nothing has been decided yet. What I can, how I can answer the question is, of course, you know, um, there's always a specific constellation where, I mean, there's always surprises, yes, but there's also always a specific constellation where certain countries have an investment in Eurovision and certain countries don't. Uh, And we could say just very briefly, the heydays of Eastern Europe are over. That was the 2000s, you know, analogously. So the times when when Serbia and, um, Mm. you know, other countries had a very strong, Russia had a very strong interest in winning Eurovision uh, and, you know, got got the best Swedish producers and songwriters to get a catchy tune that would appeal to all of Europe. Um, That time is over for a couple of reasons. You know, I think they... Arrived in Europe, including the European Union, in different ways. It's also an economic question, of course. You know, Uh, uh, Eurovision is also expensive. Not everybody wants to win at Eurovision because it's expensive. I know the UK is doing it, uh, no, voluntarily.
2: (laughs) <laughs> oh, no. we, I mean at the moment it's turning out quite well because we our, our currency is so weak that we would desperately need all the tourists to turn up and spend a little bit of whatever they have.
1: But I mean, I, I love the UK to be the host next year, but that's, you know, I, I totally do. I think it's a it's a really very interesting moment of, you know, not just with becoming second this year, but also with hosting it, uh having a look of how what that does to your Euro, UK your vision culture which on the one hand is so totally important for uh your Euro- vision and and mm. and the discourse and the culture of Eurovision while at the same time you know with um the cynicism not just irony but also the cynicism with which uh UK participation in Eurovision has been met you know uh <laughs> and to 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 look at that uh while the contest is in the UK that will be very interesting to me anyways and and also a way of bringing UK back to Europe in a way anyways that's a different story good luck good luck
2: with that I'll come back to you for for tips closer to the time and definitely look uh, forward
1: to your your next book
2: (laughs) (laughs) Peter thank you so much for the conversation thank you for the book
1: thank you for taking the time and for the interest
2: Hipster the Porn, Queer Masculinities and Effective Sexualities in the Fanzine But by Peter Rebert is published by Routledge. I'm Pierre and the editor is Marcia Poe. Thanks for listening and join us next time.